we'll wrap up the book of Amos. Just a reminder, we're going to, um, we'll be in Amos 9 this morning, by the way, if you want to turn your scriptures there. Just by way of reminder, we're going to take a few weeks, and Laura's very happy. She was uh, vehemently arguing with me. I was thinking about doing a different message this, uh, this Sunday, but she really wanted me to continue with Amos, and I can appreciate that. And uh, so I succumbed, and I decided to do Amos 9 this week. But in future weeks, we're going to spend three, four, five weeks in um, uh, some other studies, and then we're going to jump into the book of Acts, 28 chapters of the book of Acts. So um, if you haven't looked at Acts recently, um, you have a few weeks, three, four, five weeks, uh, to review the book of Acts before we get into uh, that study. Uh, I think you'll find the study very uh, encouraging, and yet at the same time very challenging as we look at uh, the story of uh, God's redemption in the uh, fulfilled category, redemption accomplished category. And so that's where we're going to go next. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to go to Andrew's, just to give you a heads up, next week, Lord willing, we're going to go to Andrew's confession from last week. The passage in Matthew, we'll wait for him to come out. Matthew 16, right? Matthew 16. What was the verse? Verse 16. Matthew 16, 16. We're going to look at a little bit bigger chunk than that, but um, we're going to uh, uh, revisit um, Andrew's confession and expand on it uh, into a message next week. So, with that in mind, we are in Amos chapter 9 this morning. Let's have a word of prayer and then we can learn together. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we wrap up the book of Amos. Help us to uh, understand and hear this final text in this very, very important book. A book that for most of us, before we started studying it in this series, was most likely pretty obscure. Perhaps for many, even just a name of a book that we'd never ever thought of before. So, Lord, I pray you'll help us this morning as we wrap it up, that we will be challenged and encouraged, uh, but that we will examine ourselves and um, at the same time be drawn close to you. So help us to uh, hear from you this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. What is that? Oh, okay. I was like, it sounds for me like it's right here. Um, that's really weird. That's the devil calling, definitely. Calling at the bar, it's the devil calling. In any case, uh, Amos chapter 9 is an interesting chapter. As Amos wraps up the book of Amos, named after him, um, it is a book of both condemnation, or a chapter of both condemnation and hope. Or you could put it a different way judgment and restoration. Verses 1 through 10. It's about condemnation or judgment. It's the final declaration or final installment, as it were, of Amos's uh, prophecy of judgment or condemnation. And it is the biggest installation for Amos of future hope and future restoration. Now, as we worked our way through Amos, I hope you've picked up on it that the book of Amos almost entirely is prophecy. Because obviously it's the best of times during Amos' time of ministry for the ten northern tribes of Israel. And he's prophesying about 
the reason why the future condemnation and destruction is coming, which is obviously both prophecy, what is going to happen, but it's also preaching about why it's going to happen. The proclamation of what is, and the proclamation of what is, is driving the prophecy of what will be. And then today, for the first time, there's a future prophecy yet to come for Israel that um, he brings to bear that's even, even further out in the distance. Now, let me just say this personally before we get into the text. Um, and preaching through Amos is a struggle for me. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because I'll be honest with you. I'll be, well, honest is not the right term. I'll be clear with you. Out of all the very topics or various um, genres of the scriptures, prophecy is the thing I struggle with the most. And just being clear with you. Prophecy is the thing I struggle with most. Because oftentimes prophecy is, for lack of a better term, quite murky. If you study biblical prophecy, and if you study church history, as well as Old Testament history, one of the things you know is that when it comes to prophecy, people who study prophecy almost always get it right or wrong. Quiz time. Wrong. Almost always get it wrong. And we like to be really creative. It's nowhere more clear than when you get into what we call eschatology, or end times prophecy. Um, it, it's, it's, I find it challenging. I find it very difficult to, to study and try to figure out what's being talked about. And my default has always been, well not always, but in probably the last 15 years, has always been back to always reminding myself, Steve, the story is about redemption in Christ, isn't it? It's not about trying to figure out all the nooks and crannies of what is taking place. Uh, nowhere, nowhere seen more clearly flawed as in all the various studies that have been done on the book of Revelation and oftentimes the end of Daniel. I remember growing up, um, very much so, I remember hearing that um, Kissinger was the Antichrist. A long story why that was, but uh, Kissinger was the Antichrist. And, and hearing about that, I also heard that back earlier, in earlier days, it was Hitler. Anybody ever hear that Hitler was the Antichrist? Jim, you probably would have, certainly. Um, uh, many of us are probably too young to hear that. I just, being a student of church history, I, I, I've learned that very quickly. Um, and before that, it was any number of other people. And of course, one of the ones that keeps on popping up over the centuries has been the Pope. Whichever Pope it is. Um, it's interesting how that, that keeps happening. And then when new things come about, then suddenly uh, we start figuring out that locusts are helicopters and this and that and something else. How many of you ever heard of that one? Yeah, many of you. <clears throat> I say that to say there's all sorts of weird things that happen in prophecy. And my view on prophe future prophecy, especially eschatological or end times prophecy, is I don't think God wanted us to understand all the nooks and crannies or all the little bits and pieces. I think he really wants us. I, I think there's a mystery to the whole thing. I think there must be a mystery to the whole thing. How can we know anything, ultimately and clearly, that we haven't yet visited, right? Or hasn't yet visited us? So there's a level of mystery that we have to acknowledge and embrace when we study eschatology. We're going to have some eschatology here today. And I say that just to prepare us for that.
But first, we're going to start out with the, um, the, the final condemnation or statements of judgment that we will see. We'll unpack that first, verses 1 through 10, before we get to 11 through 15. So we're going to see some more darkness before we see the dawn, if we can put it that way. So let's read the text, and then we will work our way through it. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing behind the altar, or beside the altar, I'm sorry, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults, his vault, I'm sorry, upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the houses of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And that's our text this morning. 
I think you can sense even in just the, just the basic reading of the text, there's both a very strong condemnation and statements of destruction as well as hope and promise. We're going to start out with the statements in 1 through 10 first of the condemnation and judgment. You'll notice right away in verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, which begs the question, doesn't it, or raises the question, what altar is he talking about? Some have argued that it's talking about the altar in Jerusalem since he uses the definite article, the altar. But considering that Israel or Judah has almost not been mentioned in the entire book except for the first chapter, for the most part, and, and Jerusalem itself is basically void from the text, most likely the statement, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, is referencing a different altar, a different place than Jerusalem, Judah, and the Temple Mount. What do you think he's referencing? Any idea? He's most likely referencing Bethel. Okay? He's most likely referencing Bethel, which was the, the temple, the city and the temple built originally for God, for the ten northern tribes, for the people to worship Yahweh. But we know through through the book of Amos as well as outside the book of Amos in the Old Testament, that the city of Bethel and the temple more specifically, although it had an altar to Yahweh, it also was surrounded by... Anybody remember? We already talked about it. Anybody remember? Pagan worship, and more specifically, golden calves. had golden calves around it. And the golden calves were supposedly originally to help aid in worship. The very same thing Aaron did out there down by Mount Sinai. And idolatrous practices were taking place everywhere. It is most likely this altar that in, in Amos' final vision, he sees Yahweh, the Lord, standing beside that altar. If you can imagine that he appears next to that altar, you can already know he's not what? Happy. He's not happy. He's standing beside an altar that has been absolutely... First of all, it wasn't allowed. Secondly, it is absolutely defiled. And its whole reason for being is because the ten northern tribes separated from the two southern tribes. And that was all caused by... Well, yeah, but it was initiated because of Solomon's rebellion, right? So I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and the Lord that he sees in his vision speaks. Notice what he says. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. I'm going to explain what each piece means briefly. When he says strike uh, the capitals until the thresholds uh, shake, the, the capitals are, if you could picture it, you have the, the, the top, you have the pillars, and then you have the very top of the pillars. There's these little caps that go on the top of the pillars. And they hold up the, the top of the doorway. And he says, strike them. The picture is, strike them so hard, so hard what? That the very threshold shake. If you strike the top, you've got to hit it pretty hard before the threshold shake, don't you? Where's the threshold? At the bottom. He says, strike the threshold so hard 
until I'm sorry, strike the capital so hard until the thresholds themselves shake. And he goes on, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. The, shatter them on the heads of all the people are talking about the the uh, the tops of the doors and the capitals, and if the capitals and the tops of the doors are coming down, or the openings are coming down, the pillars and the sides are also coming down, and the thresholds are all coming. The whole thing's coming to pieces. You get the picture? Now, before we go beyond it, who is he commanding to do this, do you think? Now, if we know history, we know who actually comes in and does it, right? No, not Samson. That was, that was long before this. It's the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the ones that actually do it in 722 B.C. But that's not primarily who God's talking to when He commands this to be done. They're the means, but who is He really talking about? Who He's really talking about is discovered in verse 5. The very opening line in verse 5. The very opening line is what? The Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. The Assyrians are his tool, right? But he's primarily talking to his spiritual hosts who are going to do what? Use the Assyrians to actually accomplish it. He's sending out his spiritual hosts, otherwise known as angels, to go and accomplish his task. And he tells them, strike the capitals. But of what? temple in Bethel, and it's going to echo from there everywhere. But it's, it's going to, the idea is destroy the temple. This is absolutely idolatrous, destroy the temple. The storyline, it echoes from there and the whole place gets destroyed. But the thing that's of utmost importance in the ancient Near East is if you destroy the gods, the god, the god or the worship center of the god, you have effectively destroyed the gods. And God's saying, I'm going after, this is not about me. That's what he's saying. This that's taking place in this temple is not about me. And so when I send my host to go to war, yes, the Assyrians are going to be my tool, my means, but when I send my host to go to war at you, my goal is to destroy what? Your idols. All, the, all these false gods. Shatter them on the heads of all the people. Notice, you can't miss the point. Shatter them on the heads of how many people? All the people. And if buildings fall on your head, what does that mean? You're dead. Lights out. Absolutely. And if anybody survives that is the idea, and all those who are left of them that have their, the building fall on their heads, I'm going to kill them, what? With a sword, that's clearly he's talking about his means, the Assyrians. I'm going to kill them with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away. None of them shall escape. Now he's going to make a qualifier later on in this chapter that there will be some that will escape. There will be some that will survive. It's talking primarily about those at the temple, but it's talking bigger than that because if you remember earlier, we already found out in Amos there is a small remnant, right, that will be saved. There always has been, scriptures tell us elsewhere, but in Amos itself, close context, there is a small remnant that will be saved, 
a remnant of faithful ones, a remnant of true redeemed believers, true followers of God. That's really important. Most likely none who will be at Bethel. Yes. Moving on to verse 2. Yeah, the implication of verse 1 is that why would a true believer be going to Bethel and worship there? Why would they do that? They wouldn't. Verse 2. If referring to those who are trying to escape, okay? Referring to those who, try, who are trying to escape, if they dig to Sheol. Now, Sheol, unlike what a lot of people think, Sheol is referring just to the grave. The idea is if they dig into Sheol, that is, no matter how big of a pit they dig for themselves, and you can picture what he's doing is, he's saying, you dig a big pit, it's just your grave. Even if they dig a big pit to try to escape, to hide, from there, my hand will still take them. If they climb up to heaven, now, obviously, that's hyperbole. If nobody can climb up to heaven, what do you think he really means if they climb to heaven? Yeah, that's true. But what, what do you think he's referring to? Even if, they, even if they climb up to heaven? To the top of the highest mountains. To the highest mountains. Even if they escape to the most remote place in Israel. And the most remote place, by the way, in Israel would be Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, a little over 10,000 feet, highest mountain, most, most uh, uh, desolate, wildernessy place that you could get to in Israel, even to this day. Although now there's a ski area on top. And that day there was definitely not. Even if they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Verse 3, if they hide themselves on top of Carmel... Carmel is to the west of Jerusalem. And, and, I'm sorry, west of the, uh, the western side of, of the ten northern tribes. It's also west of, northwest of Jerusalem. If they go to the top of, of Carmel, to, Carmel is very different from Hermon. Hermon is a rock desolate wilderness. Carmel is loaded with trees. It's the thickest forest, it always has been, the thickest forest in Israel. It's all over Mount Carmel. Some people pronounce it Mount Carmel. And on the eastern side, I'm sorry, on the western side of Carmel is all caves inside all these, all the forest land. Even if they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. They can't escape God. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, which obviously they cannot do. Again, he's using hyperbole. Even if they were able to hide themselves even at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And that bite will result in what, according to the context? Death. Verse 4, And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. What is verse 4 about? Let me explain verse 4 real quickly. Uh, you may think it sounds, sounds just really obvious. It's not as obvious as you think. The idea in verse 4 is this. Even if some of them say, we know how we can escape, we will willingly surrender. 
We'll just willingly surrender and go in as captives. The idea is not that they are in battle, captured, fighting all the way. No. Even if you decide we will escape death by merely surrendering as soon as the Assyrians show, and the idea is many will because life will be so difficult for Israel in 30 short years, by the time the Assyrians come, many will just surrender just to try to survive. What does he say? Even if you do that, even if you willingly surrender, thinking you can escape death, there I will command the sword and it will kill you. You will not survive. That's what he's telling Israel. You will not survive this. You will die. And I will fix my eyes upon you for evil and not for good. End of verse 4. What did he just declare? What he just declared when he says, I will fix my eyes on you for evil and not for good, he's saying, I will continue my wrath on you until there is none of you left. My eyes will be fixed until all are dead. It's a serious thing, isn't it? I mean, this is horrifying. These are God's people. These are God's covenantal people. These are the descendants of the people who, who were at Mount Sinai, received the law, received the covenant, became people of the covenant, became a special people. A people that God brought upon, to Himself. A people who were not His people and He made them His people. And now He's saying, what? You're doomed. I'm going to kill you all. He goes on in verse 5, The Lord of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. We're going to stop there for just a second. The Lord of hosts is speaking. Who is He? Once again, He reminds them who He is. And if He is who He is, then He can certainly do what He has described. And by the way, if I may just say this, history records what God prophesied through Amos happened in 722 B.C., 37 years later. It's an absolute prophecy. And it was absolutely perfectly fulfilled. It's stunning to see I hear people all the time try to deny God and say that the prophecies are not real. My goodness, Amos happened to a T 30-some years after Amos prophesied. So what is he talking about? The Lord of hosts. Who is he? He introduces himself again. He touches the earth and it what? It melts. That's his power. That's what he's describing. He's describing if he touches it, if he touches the earth with the goal of melting the earth, what's going to happen to the earth? It's going to melt. That's the point he's trying to make. That's the power. This is the God who spoke it into existence. He touches it and it melts. And all who dwell in it mourn in the process. There's no escaping. He's trying, presenting on the one hand who he is and his power. On the other hand, he's, he's, he's presenting what happens when he moves. And when he moves in wrath, the only thing left is in the process of dying, 
much mourning. In verse 5 he continues, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. It's an interesting, an interesting picture for the, for the Israelites because they would know of how the Nile floods and just overtakes everything. And, it, and Egypt all those years tried to stop, all those centuries tried to control the Nile and they never ever could. It would flood everything and wipe out everything. And then it would just almost disappear. And there's nothing they could do about it. The Nile was uncontrollable. And that's exactly what he's using just as a picture for the children of Israel. And it, the picture is when he says, all of it rises like the Nile, it's talking about God's wrath. It all rises and nothing can avoid it. It just comes up, nothing can avoid it. Verse 6 who builds his upper chamber in, in the heavens. He's talking about himself. And he's describing who he is. No one built his throne. No one built his kingdom. He built it. Himself. No one could possibly build it. This is how great and how powerful God is. Yahweh is. He built his throne. That's the upper chambers. The upper chambers are the chambers where the throne room is. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says, and founds his vault upon the earth. What do you think he's referring to there? Founds his vault upon the earth. This is a condemnation. Founding his vault upon the earth was originally the tabernacle and later on the temple. And where is the temple? Jerusalem. Not Bethel. He founds it. That's why I say they had no right to do what they did in Bethel. In any way, he founds the vault, his vault upon the earth. He establishes. He establishes how worship and where worship is to take place. And he made it very clear in the law. It's to take place where? Jerusalem. Temple Mount. It was very clear. Verse 6, he continues, who calls for the waters of the sea and it pours out, I'm sorry, and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. What do you think he's referring to there? Yes. Exactly what he's referring to. He's calling them to remember who God is in every way. He has his throne in heaven. He has established that. He's the one who declared Jerusalem and the temple is to be the place of worship. He's the one who controls the Nile, does he not? He's the one who's going to do the future stuff that we saw in 1 through 4. He's the one who did what? It's interesting. His future is the future prophecy at this point in time is, is condemnation or blessing at this point. Condemnation and destruction is complete, isn't it? When he references at the end of verse 6, when he references the flood, was it condemnation or blessing? It's condemnation. So he's tying the flood into the future destruction of Israel. He, it's, as, it's as if he's saying, 
You want to know what's coming, Israel? Remember the flood. Now, it's a striking comparison, isn't it? Because there was a remnant that was saved, wasn't there, in the flood? Small one. That's right. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't. A small, but there was a remnant that God saved. But everybody else what? Perished. What is he saying here? He's saying with regard to Israel, it's going to be like the flood all over again. Now it's not going to be a flood because he promised never to have a flood again, right? It's not going to be a flood. But it is going to be a flood. It's just not a flood of water, is it? It's a flood of judgment and it's going to be a flood of Assyrians. Oh, there'll be a remnant. But it's going to be a flood. And he reminds him at the end of verse 6, the Lord is his name. That's who's going to do all this. And then he turns to the children of Israel after describing the future judgment, which, by the way, can I just pause on that just for a second? It's still 30 years away, approximately. You know what that means? What does that mean? It's still 30 years away. What does that mean? It's still time to repent. There's even yet going to be one more mention of a remnant. It's still time to repent. But history records that there were very few. Verse 7, he turns to the Israelites themselves. And Amos is presenting God's, Yahweh's, actual words. Are you not like the Cushites to me? O people of Israel. This must have been an incredibly jarring statement. If you were an Israelite, you considered yourself one of God's what? Blank people. Chosen people. You were a called out people. You were a special people. So you were. That's what the mindset was. And what does he say to him here? Are you not like the Cushites to me? Who's the Cushites? The Cushites were the Ethiopians. Are you not just like the Ethiopians to me? They were not God's covenant people. He's saying you keep talking about yourself like you're a special people. You're just like the Cushites. Why? How could God say that? You know why? Because not all Israel is Israel. That's why. It's not about what blood you have or what ancestors you have. It never was. It never was. It's always been about God's mercy and the resulting faithfulness of His people. God's mercy, let me add in God's mercy and grace. And about God, people's faithfulness in light of that. He goes on. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And obviously what? He did. And the idea there, did not I bring up Egypt, or I'm sorry, Israel from the land of Egypt, is this. He's saying, 
did I not take a group of people who were slaves? Correct? And did I not bring you out of Egypt? And the answer obviously is, yes. You were slaves. I rescued you out of slavery. And they would say amen to that, wouldn't they? But what does he do next? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? It's a three-part question. It's not a one-part question. What is God trying to get across here? I did. You were in slavery, Israel, and I brought you out of Egypt. But don't ever forget the Egyptian, I'm sorry, the, the Philistines were slaves in Kaftor as well, and I brought them up out of Kaftor. Not only that, the Syrians were slaves in Kerr, and I brought them out of Kerr. Anything that happens is ultimately by the hand of God, isn't it? You act like you're so special. I did the same thing with you that I did with everyone else is the implication. The only real difference is, in effect, I brought you out to be my people, but you have chosen to be just like the Cushites instead. You have not been my people. That's his argument. And yet you think you're somehow special. And you are not. So he says in verse 8, Behold, in light of all this, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. The eyes of God are upon this kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, this sinful kingdom. Earlier he said it was fixed on them, didn't he? His eyes are on the sinful kingdom, are upon them. And the result of the eyes of the Lord God are upon them is not the eyes of the Lord God are upon them in blessing. The Lord God's eyes are upon them, are gazing upon them in cursing. The picture elsewhere described in the Old Testament is the face of God's blessing is not being referenced, but the face of God's cursing is being referenced here. Because if the eyes are upon them, that means a face is upon them. Does that make sense? And, and, and the Scriptures elsewhere repeatedly talk about the face of blessing and the face of cursing. It pours right out of the book of Deuteronomy. So the idea here is, behold, the eyes of the Lord God, the eyes of curses, or the face of curses, are upon the sinful kingdom. And the result of this, these eyes being upon them and the face being upon them, I will destroy it. That is, the sinful kingdom I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. And again, history records when the Assyrians moved in in 722 B.C., it was absolutely destroyed. Leveled. All the way to the point of, 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 of uh, farm walls being torn down, dividing, dividing the farms. All the trees uprooted and torn down. Everything was destroyed. Everything. I will so he goes on and he says, except, in verse 8, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. What's he referencing here? He's referencing the faithful remnant. 
the remnant that is truly God's people. I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There will be. We saw earlier, 100 go out and 10 return. We saw earlier, 100 go out, I'm sorry, 1,000 go out and 100 return. We saw earlier that even in destruction, 1 in 10, somebody goes into a house where there's absolute destruction, there's still one alive. In that case, referencing most likely part of the remnant. He's not going to utterly destroy the house of Jacob. He can't. Because God's promise is an everlasting kingdom, isn't it? And he explains it a little bit further in verse 9 and 10. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations. And of course, when he says, I will shake the uh, house of Israel among the nations, it would have to dredge up in their mind the earthquake that happened a couple years earlier and the absolute destruction of that earthquake. But he describes something that's much greater than that earthquake they experienced. Because notice what he says. In the midst of all the rest of the nations, I'll shake this house of Israel. But he describes it very differently. He describes it as one shakes a sieve. And the sieve he's referencing here is a sieve used in construction. Some people have argued the sieve, a, a, a sieve, a, 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 yeah, a sieve, thank you, a sieve that would be used for cooking. But no, it's a sieve for that's used in construction typically when you're sorting things. You want to get all the dirt and, and junk out, but you want to keep the building materials. And you take a sieve, a screen as it were, and you shake it back and forth. So it's a sorting sieve. And he's saying, in effect, I'm going to sort, and everything's going to be sorted. And it's going to be sorted amazingly accurately. All the dirt and junk is going to come out. But what does he say next? Somebody read it. What does he say right after that? He's going to shake the sieve and now one pebble shall fall to the ground. What's the pebbles, you think? The chosen ones, the remnant. He won't lose any. The remnant will remain. But all the dirt, and the dirt is the sinful people he just referenced. The unrepentant ones. They will fall to the earth, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Now we've got to be careful with verse 10 because if we misunderstand verse 10, how many are going to die? Everyone, because everybody's a sinner, right? What's he talking about here? All the sinners of my people should die by the sword. He goes on and clarifies that. Who are they? Who are these sinners who are going to die who say disaster shall not overtake or meet me? Why would people say that? Well, here's why, more specifically, why people would say that in Israel's day, in Amos' day. Why would they say no disaster is going to overtake us? They'd say it because they believe they're God's chosen people. They're God's blessed people. They're a special race, a special people. The implication of the text is this. And this is what you really need to hear. The reason why they would say that, or, the, I mean, sorry, let me change that. The result of thinking that way is that as a result of that, they are not going to be people who would be described as repentant people. 
They're banking on all the wrong things, friends. That's the point. They're banking on all the wrong things. In Old Testament case, in Israel's case, they're banking on Abraham. They're banking on Moses. They're banking on the, the Abrahamic covenant. They're banking on the, on the Mosaic covenant. They're banking on the Noahic covenant. They're banking on the promises of God, the promises of blessing. But they're forgetting about the warnings of the curses. They're forgetting about the calls to holiness. And they've forgotten the very central core of the covenant, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And anyone who has the Spirit, who hears that passage, has to say what? I can't. And if they're saying, I can't, then they're going to not default to Abraham and Moses and the covenant and the blessings. They're going to default to they're going to, they're going to default to ultimately the guy who beat his chest and cried out in the New Testament, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And they're going to cry out for a needed Redeemer. And that's not where they are. And so they're saying, well, I'm God's chosen people. I'm God's chosen person. No disaster will befall me. Could I just bring this to the modern day? If you said no, too bad. I'm going to do it anyway. My goodness, the more things change, the more they stay the same, don't they? How many people who claim to be Christians are banking on it? Banking on what? Promises of God that are promises of blessing. Right? How many Christians are banking on that? How many Christians are, if I may just throw it out here, how many Christians are banking on I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I raised my hand, I asked Jesus to be my Savior, and He promised that, that I'll be in heaven when I die. And they don't give a rip about worshiping God today. Oh, they may... hope this sounds familiar. They might do the traditions. And I'm not just talking about Easter, Sun, Easter and Christmas. I'm talking about the twofers. I'm talking about people who do it religiously even. They do the practices. They do the things that are expected. But their hearts are still far from God and yet they think that I'm good to go. That's not a biblical theme. I don't care where you look, Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. It's not a biblical theme. If I may quote you, Tom, a little bit, maybe it's not a quote, summarize. Tom and I have had some interesting discussions lately. These, these passages are troubling, aren't they, Tom? They are really, really troubling. They trouble me to the core of my heart. How about me? 
And Tom was sharing the same thing with, with me about him. These, these are haunting passages, friends. I was sharing with Tom recently. I love Jack Ortson. He was the founder and director of Word of Life for years. He used to always say, I am as sure of heaven as if I've already been there for 300 years. I remember hearing him say that and say, that is not biblically correct. The Scriptures are really clear. He who endures to the end will be saved. That's what the Scriptures say. Now, if the Spirit is at work in us, you know what's going to happen? We're going to endure to the end. But there's a whole lot of people who start well and what? Finish really badly. We can't miss the parable of the four soils, can we? One of them didn't start at all. The other one just barely started. But the, but the third one really did well for quite a time. It was only the fourth one that did really well. And I'm not talking about some sort of legalistic we've got to do well. I'm talking about when the Spirit is at work in someone's life. You know what's going to happen? We're going to yield fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. But Paul himself, the Apostle Paul himself, in Philippians chapter 3, talked about how he considered everything behind him dung before he was saved, that he may know Christ and the power of His resurrection being united with Him in suffering so that perhaps I can attain the resurrection of the dead. I mean, that's what the text says. That's what the Apostle Paul. See, for the Apostle Paul, it wasn't like, good to go. It was very contrary to that. And yet, we sound eerily similar too often to this, friends. Eerily similar. The sinners are unrepentant ones because they're banking on all the wrong stuff. They're banking on all the wrong things. As a result, they're not repentant people. They're not people who are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. They're not people who are enthralled with and reveling in their God. They're reveling in something else. Or in many something else's. It's only the pebbles that don't fall to the earth. And I would argue there's still a sieve yet to come. I think there's a lot of people who are thinking they're pebbles and they're going to fall through the sieve. They're going to fall through. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, and He'll say, depart from me, never mind. Well, from there we move from the destruction to an amazing promise. This gets into more eschatological terms, and I'll be honest with you, I'm going to try my best on this. But, but I, do, uh, I will try to keep it a little fuzzy at the same time. Let me read it again, 11-15. through 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David, 
that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the, the seed. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruins the ruined cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never be uprooted again out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. I just want to be general and make a couple observations of the text at this point. In that day, verse 11, it's not talking about the day of destruction. It's talking about a different day. A day of restoration. A day of blessing. Not the day of destruction. In that day, he says, this day of blessing that's eschatological, end times, in that day, I will raise up, and he goes on and lists this, the, the, the booth of David um, that is fallen. In other words, it's not just the, the kingdom he's describing, or not just the, the house of David. He takes it all the way down to the booth of David, which most likely is referring to the ruins are so complete, there's not even a, a house. Not even a house. It's a booth, which is nothing more than a tent, a temporary dwelling place. That's how far gone it will be. Repair its breaches, that is, the holes in the walls. Raise up the ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, this again is eschatological. It's looking to the future. I would argue this has not yet happened. I want to be really clear about this. There are a lot of Christians who think that biblical prophecy was fulfilled in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. And I would tell you, that's not true. Is God doing something? Yeah, God's doing something in everything, right? He brought the Philistines, brought out the Syrians, brought Israel, all out of slavery. Everything that happens is like God's doing. Do I know what this is all about in Israel today? No, I don't. I don't. I will say I feel very comfortable and confident in saying that what has taken place up to this point in time in Israel is not fulfillment of prophecy. I know that may offend some people. A lot of Christians. I'm okay with that. The Scriptures, I would say, elsewhere are very clear and it's alluded to very strongly in this text that in that day, that eschatological day, it will be believers. And that's not what, we, what is there. It will be believers. It will be followers. Why in the world, especially when we compare this text to many other texts in the Scriptures, why would God bless a rebellious people? He, he doesn't do that. And He certainly would not do, He would not restore a rebellious people who are still in rebellion and promise them that He would never, ever bring difficulty into their life again, which He promises here. That doesn't make any sense. This text is talking about something yet to come. It is not what is there in Israel today. That doesn't mean I'm anti-Israel. Saying that's not what this is talking about. The raising up he's talking about here is something yet to come. Now, 
Let me qualify one more thing here. In everything that's going on here, a couple things I want to point out. I would say verse 12 is making an interesting statement. He talks about them, but he also talks about the nations who are called by his name. And the, the way it's laid out here is a little bit muddy, so let me just attempt to try to clarify. I take a position, eschatologically or end times things, a little different from a lot of people. Most people, most Christians fall into two camps. The one camp says that the time of Israel was done, is done, incomplete, in completeness, and now we are spiritual Israel, and anything that talks about eschatological or end times things is all talking about only spiritual Israel, that is the church. There's one group that would say that. The other group would say that the Old Testament's about Israel, New Testament's about the church, and then the church age is going to come to an end, and then there is going to be national Israel again, and Christians will be in heaven, type of thing, or actually come back down here and reign and rule here as well. Um, I take a midline approach to that. I merge them both together because I think it's the only thing that really makes sense in the scriptures. Old Testament is obviously talking about covenant Israel, correct? It's pretty clear talking about covenant Israel. But the New Testament also clearly states that Christians in this New Testament era, this already not yet time frame, are spiritual Israel. We can't miss the point. And it, it doesn't come out just in one or two verses. It's, it's in a lot of places. We are spiritual Israel. And yet, when I look at the Scriptures, as I say the Scriptures anyway, again, being tentative in my eschatological approaches, it seems to me there's too many clear statements that still seem to say that there is a future for ethnic Israel. This is one of those texts that bring both of them together, the nations and Israel. So I, I would argue, and I, I would definitely not be dogmatic about much on this subject, but it seems to me it would make most sense that there is a future for ethnic Israel and a future for spiritual Israel. And ethnic Israel will be believers, so they're going to be very similar to each other. But at the same time, there seems to be something about ethnic Israel or national Israel as well. But it's future. It's not present. It's future. It's eschatological. Last things. But here, as he talks about the repair and rebuild, it's of the... Uh, nation, and then he talks about in, in verse 12 as well, uh, all the nations that are called by my name. It's interesting. That are called by my name. He's talking about the people throughout the, all the nations that are called people. That are repentant people. That are God-fearers. That are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. With all of the ramifications that come along with that which we'll get into in a second. Verse 13, he continues on, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And then he says this weird thing, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the reaper, I'm sorry, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. What is he talking about? It's a fulfillment of Old, time, I'm sorry, Old Testament Deuteronomic prophecy. He's saying, in effect, this. <clears throat> 
the plowman will go out to plow the ground. But while he's plowing, the reaper is still doing what? The reaper's out in the field still what? Harvesting or reaping. What does that mean? It means the harvest is so plentiful. So overwhelming, overwhelmingly plentiful that both of them are out in the field at the same time. What is that? Called God's blessing of peace and love. The treader of grapes is treading grapes at the same time that the sower of seed is out sowing. It never happens. But, the, but, the, but the, the yield just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming because God is blessing His people. And He clarifies it even further. I will restore the fortunes of My people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and this is the key, they shall never be uprooted again out of the land that I've given them. And we have one last clue that he's talking about a repentant people, a worshipful people. First clue is what? They'll never be uprooted again. There's never going to be judgment again. Which means they are, they are going to be repentant, they are going to, con to continue to be repentant people. <clears throat> and he wraps it all up by saying, says, he, he describes himself radically different than he does anywhere else in this book, doesn't he? How does he describe himself? Says the Lord, you are God. It's a term of love, of mercy, of grace. And who is he talking about? Who are these people who he's saying this about in, 10, in 11 through 15? Who are these people? They are people who were not saying, we will not be overrun. We will not be destroyed. These are not people who were not repentant people. These are people who are repentant. These are not people who are telling Amos to go back to Judah, as it were. Or maybe we should bring it again to more modern era. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, this is describing, as you've heard me say many, many times, people in the church in the last days. That's what he's talking about. Not the pagan people outside the church. He's talking about people who claim to be believers. People who claim to be followers of God. 
Who is he referencing? People who will fall through the sieve. That's what Paul is talking about here. The church is going to be full of people who will fall through the sieve. Thinking up until the sieve comes, they're good to go. But this is how he describes them. He goes on. Avoid such people, Paul tells Timothy. Which is we saw in Amos as well. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. By the way, please don't miss a point on that, on that statement. When he says they go into houses and, 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 and lead, capture weak women, that's certainly referencing sexual sin. But when it goes on, it says, burdened with sins and led away by various passions, please do not think he's still talking merely about sexual sins there. It's any passions that people are being led away from Christ with. It could be sports. It could be your job. It could be money. It could be vacation. It could be anything. It could even be family. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They just remain infants when it comes to the Scriptures. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. You get the idea? They're going to fall through the sieve. They're disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. And could you please understand, most importantly, their folly will be known to God, the shaker of the sieve. Jump to chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be added in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time will come when people have, will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know what he just described? Two things he just described. Number one, he described people who will fall through the sieve. Didn't he? There will be people, what does he say? For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. And the idea is most, in the light of the context. And you get it again, like he said in chapter 3, we didn't even read it. You, however, verse 10 in chapter 3, now in chapter 4 he says, um, um, in verse um, 5, as for you, personal, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Can I just submit to you? The people who are preaching 
proclaiming, that's the word means, proclaiming the word, verse 1 and 2, and who are, verse 5, and who are, verse chapter 3, verse 10 and following, are people who the sieve catches. Who stay in the sieve. And again, I'm not being legalistic. This is the things we just got to do. What is he saying? Unlike everybody else, chapter 3, Timothy became convinced of the truth. How did Timothy become convinced of the truth? By the Holy Spirit, he became convinced of the truth. What was the evidence he became convinced of the truth? He stayed with the truth. What's the evidence? He became convinced of the truth by the Spirit. He proclaimed the truth. What's the evidence? What was the evidence the Spirit brought him uniquely in light of most of the people in the church to believe the truth and cling to the truth? Well, it says it there. Being sober-minded. Enduring suffering. Doing the work of evangelist. Fulfilling ministry. That's just the evidence of a sieve person, not a dirt person. A pebble. Who is the one in 11 through 15 that will be in this category, not in 1 through 10? The one who perseveres to the end. And the only way we persevere to the end is because what? Absolutely. It's because the Spirit of God is at work in us, preserving us to the end. But the idea is the evidence that the work of God is working in us, that we would persevere to the end, is that we're actually persevering. And what does persevering mean? Well, again, 2 Timothy 3 and 4 describe it, doesn't it? It does. Paul describes it there pretty clearly, doesn't he? And it's described elsewhere as well. I just chose that passage. You see, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll, we'll fall in the same exact trap that the Israelites fell into. We'll think we're good to go. I, I appreciate, if I may talk about you for a second, Ken, I appreciate Ken because you know what? Can I have this regular conversation? It's a regular conversation. I'm so blessed by the conversation. You know what Ken talks to you about regularly? He says, Steve, I, I, I'm troubled all the time about this. He says to me all the time. I'm, I'm really troubled. When I look at the scriptures, I'm really troubled. Because there's so many warnings in the Scriptures. There's so many cautions. There's so many comments by God. Check yourself. Examine yourself. Be careful how you walk. Today, while it's still today, be after. We saw it in Hebrews, didn't we? Over and over and over again. And Kenneth said so many times to me, I'm troubled by this. 
And my answer to him every time, Ken, isn't it right? That's a good thing. That's a good place to be. Because you know why you'd be troubled? You know what I'm troubled by? When people aren't troubled. I'm troubled when people talk like I've always heard all my life. Because that's not what I see in the Scriptures. Walk circumspectly. Walk carefully. Walk as children of the light. First John, those who are saved ought to live the same way. Right? As I lived. I mean, these are challenging statements. They're troubling. At the end of the day, as I've shared with Ken, at the end of the day, we ought to, every one of us, be troubled. In the middle of the day, we ought to be troubled by this, which should cause us to beat our chest once again, shouldn't it? And to cry out, I cannot measure up. I need your mercy. I need you to be gracious to me. Only you can turn your face of blessing upon me. And I know you can't unless I have Christ's righteousness. Oh, I need Him every hour. Because without Him, I'm doomed. And that's the troubling thing that we ought to have in our lives all the time. Because that turns us to look to the Look to the cross. And that's what causes us by the Spirit to look to Jesus and depend upon Him and to cry out to Him. Because there is a sieve. And judgment is coming. And there's a lot of Christians who think that Christians will not be judged. <laughs> and boy, that's foreign to the Scriptures. We will stand before the throne as well. Unless we have Christ's righteousness, He will say, depart from me. But if we have Christ's righteousness, if Christ's righteousness in the Holy Spirit is anything, it is transformative. And God causes His children to persevere and yield fruit. Amen? Our task is not to do better. Our task is to know our Redeemer. And to know our Redeemer lives. And to cry out to Him for mercy. And to repent and taste and see that He is good. The calls of the Scripture are clear. I'm not denying the commands. Not by any stretch of the imagination. The commands are there. But my goodness, who cares if I do the stuff of Christianity, but I'm not enthralled with the Christ of Christianity? They did the stuff of Judaism. They weren't enthralled with the God of Judaism. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Our call is to know Him, to worship Him, to drink deeply at the fountain of living water, to eat all the time the bread of life, and be satisfied. And you know you're satisfied when you just want more of what satisfies. If you don't want more of Christ, then perhaps the initial call to repentance is what's needed. The call to salvation. 
At the same time, we all need to be reminded, don't we? Come to Jesus. There is a sieve. And the pebbles will arrive in a place where there never again be any discipline, condemnation, or judgment forevermore, says the Lord your God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We ask you to open the eyes of our hearts so that we will know you and that we will know ourselves. Because in knowing you, we will be exposed. And when we are exposed for who we really are, we will recognize how desperate we really are. And that we have our own Bethels, and the golden calves are there. And we too long have said, go back to Judah, we don't want to hear this. As evidenced by how seldom we read the Scriptures, and seldom we think about your Word, and seldom we think of you. So Lord, I pray you'll draw us to repentance, draw us to turn away from our sins and turn to the God who has redeemed. Change us. Mold us. Transform us by your power. In your name I pray, amen.